This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with the people who help shape it. For more, visit lbj.utexas.edu. Thanks for joining us for today's podcast series, From a Great Society to a Resilient Society, Building a Resilient Future in a Globally Connected World. Today, we're building off the terrific work of the LBJ Policy Toolkit and looking to shape policies for a more resilient America community and world at large. I'm Stephen Pedigo, Professor of Practice and Director of the LBJ Urban Lab. In this six-part series, we'll highlight LBJ faculty and researchers who are uncovering new practices and approaches to understanding resiliency. Today, we're starting with the concept of leadership and decision-making with my colleagues, Don Kettle and Jeremy Suri, looking towards a post-vaccine world led by a new Biden administration. Don and Jeremy, thanks for joining us. It is great to be with you, Stephen. Wonderful to be part of this conversation. Don, there's a good chance that COVID has accelerated changes that were already underway. There's no going back to January 2020. What's the post-COVID world going to look like? And what's going to stick around um, that we've discovered in the last year? That's such a good question because there are so many people who are saying, oh, we just want to get back to normal. Or they're talking about the the now banned phrase, the new normal. What's really going on is that there are a lot of changes already underway that COVID has accelerated. And so it's not only a matter of not going back to where we were or even thinking about what the new normal is, but jumping on a fast-moving train that's been accelerated by the virus. There's everything from the nature of work, about where people work, how they work, the the fact that remote work, which was in many places an open debate a year ago, has now become something that's a matter of course. It's the business of food delivery and the delivery of restaurant supplies, of, of takeout food, of things that have to do with grocery store items, the explosion of Amazon, the press that's happened with UPS and FedEx as a result, the the changing nature of cities with the exodus from places like San Francisco into places like Austin, the the way that that's changed real estate, where people now increasingly are looking for home offices with good, strong, reliable internet, what's happened to movie theaters along the way and whether or not the movie business will ever be the same. I mean, all those things have dramatically changed the way in which we live, which were already well underway, but which unquestionably are something that's much different now and will be in the future. So it's a it's a fast-moving train. Anybody who thinks they know exactly where the future is going to be, I think is probably mistaken at this point. But we do know that we're in the midst of, of an incredibly rapid change that's been accelerated. And one that where we have to be alert to the issue of disparities that have grown up. Not only has this been something that's affected everybody, but it's affected different parts of society differently. The gig economy workers, for example, have been severely disadvantaged by the way in which things have happened. There are lots of parts of society that have suffered as well. We have problems of both the impact of the vaccine that have affected black and Hispanic communities much worse than white communities, and now the same kind of problem as we were all off the vaccine. So not only have we accelerated things already in place, but we've shined uh, a brighter light on some of the big, huge issues of inequalities in American society that we're going to need to pay much more careful attention to. Jeremy, any additional thoughts to add to Don's perspective? 
Well, adding to to Don's excellent comments, I'd say that as a historian, uh, we know that large crises of this kind, which are rare but occur recurringly, uh, they leave enormous impacts upon the world and upon society in many dimensions, dimensions that are often not seen as we're going through the crisis. So here I'm comparing what what we've lived through the last year to World War II, for example, or to the 1918 influenza pandemic or to the Civil War. Um, And what we see is that there are long-term effects on demography that both create challenges and opportunities. So one of the challenges, and this builds on what Don was saying, is that we have uh, certain uh, groups of citizens, particularly from disadvantaged uh, groups, who are now far, far behind. They haven't had uh, access to educational resources, which were already unequal, but have now become even more unequal. Uh, They have not had access to nutrition. Uh, They've not had access to uh, their investments in their 401ks and other things if they've been out of work for this year. And then, of course, there are the 500,000 people who will have died by the time we're done with this crisis. Uh, and, and that labor will be missing from our society. So, so these are these are big holes that will will exist that we will take years and decades to adjust to. Now, there are positive opportunities as well. Uh, all of these big crises historically produce positive opportunities. One of them uh, is that uh, we've learned we can do a lot of the things we long have done without the same carbon footprint. Uh, I'm one of many people who used to be on an airplane every week or every other week. I haven't been on an airplane in eight, nine months, and I miss seeing people in person in different places. But I'm not going to get back on airplanes every week again. I've learned I don't need to do that. And that's better for our environment. That's better for so many aspects of our society, probably better for transportation in so many ways. So there are opportunities and challenges. And the truth is uh, that it, it will take us years just to identify these issues and to begin to think through what this means. Our society will be a different society long after COVID is a forgotten memory. Don, building off of Jeremy's thoughts, why is it important for decision makers and leaders both at you know the state and local levels as well as the federal level to understand the implications of these changes? Uh, it's important and it's important in two respects. The first is in the here and now. The big problem that political leaders have is defining reality for the citizens that they represent and trying to help them find a way through that. And so, so much of what we have now is answering the question of, when are we going to be able to get back to normal? What is normal going to look like? Does does normal even have meaning? How am I going to restore stability to my life? Where in particular am I going to be able to get a vaccine and what is the process going to be for signing up for it? Those are all big questions that political leaders have to face and because it's their job to communicate to citizens, to find reality and help citizens find their way through. That's absolutely essential and a huge challenge. But the other thing that political leaders have here is, as Jeremy was just pointing out, an enormous, enormous opportunity. The future is going to belong to those communities who find ways to the future faster than others, who have leaders who can help chart their way past the current problems and into the the enormous opportunities that the future holds open. And so that's one of the things that is the second part of leadership that's going to be absolutely essential. Now, we've had a real challenge in the last few months trying to find ways of doing that inside our particular governmental structure. Federalism, the relationship between federal, state, and local governments is under assault as uh, never before in recent history, at least, although we can look back historically to find other big times when winds have buffeted the system. But the federal government has dealt with the problem largely by passing it on to the states. 
The states, in many cases, have dealt with it by passing it on to the cities. And we're not going to be able to get to either a solution to our current problems or to find our way through into the future if we try to engage in that buck-passing strategy. It's going to require an unprecedented level of collaboration to be able to make that happen. When we're capable of doing it, but it's going to take a very different strategy, starting from the very, very top in Washington. Jeremy, we obviously have a new administration in the Biden administration that will have to react and build upon many of these changes. What are some historical analogies or reference points for the Biden administration can look towards? I think this is one of the most important questions because we all need uh, historical ballast when we're entering a new world. We don't know what's going to happen next. Uh, all we have is the past to look to, and this is something I've written about. We look to the past to try to give ourselves a sense of where we're going based on where we've been, and also give us the confidence to know that we can get through because we've survived challenges like this in the past. We can survive in the future. Uh, the most obvious and I think relevant analogy is Franklin Roosevelt's first administration. Uh, he took office in March of 1933. Uh, like the current president, uh, he was someone who was restricted in some of his movements. Uh, in, in Roosevelt's case, it was because of health. Uh, in Biden's case, it's because of the current COVID uh, pandemic, and it's also because of Biden's age to some extent. Uh, but Roosevelt recognized three things that I think are essential as guidelines and inspirations for this administration. First, he recognized that in a time of complexity and chaos, you need to keep things simple. People need a simple, truthful message that speaks to their needs. Second, uh, he recognized that you need to bring competent people together. Roosevelt put together a brain trust of all kinds of figures. He didn't have extreme Republicans, that's true, but he had many moderate Republicans as well as many Democrats, many academics who brought new ideas to him. That's where the Civilian Conservation Corps comes from, the Works Progress Administration, many of the ideas that are so central to the Roosevelt administration. And then third, and I think I put an exclamation point behind this third point, he recognized that government had to reinvent the way it did things. That has to be done within the legal infrastructure that we have, but leadership is about turning those institutions into more effective actors and helpers for the things we need in our society. We don't need an imperial presidency, but we need an engaged presidency. And we don't need uh, a Congress that is passing millions of pieces of legislation, but we need some very basic pieces of legislation to get the right kinds of aid to the right kinds of communities. And history shows we can do this. And it's not just the rhetoric of the past, it's the example of the past that I think can guide uh, Biden and guide our public in seeing where we stand as citizens in this new environment today. So Don, one of the biggest issues that we face as a country is getting the vaccine distributed to Americans. That's going to require engaged governance, as Jeremy uh, illustrated. Biden's plan is to vaccinate nearly 1 million Americans a day, and that's going to require collaboration between the state and local officials, as well as the federal government, as well as engaging the private sector what steps are needed to make that happen? This is, if there's anything that's important in trying to make real the kinds of things that Jeremy and I have been talking about, it's getting the vaccination process on track. And there's a sense that it has been broken, which in fact it is. In many ways, that's not surprising because this is, in many ways, the, the most challenging logistical effort that the federal government state and local governments as well have had to try to face since mobilizing for World War II. We've, we've got to try to do all of what we've done to try to make even the testing process, which has already been struggling, uh, we've got to do 
essentially something seven times as big in half the time if we're going to meet the goals to try to get the country back on track. So this is an enormous problem. To be able to get at that, what we need first is a federal assumption of strong leadership. And that means both clarifying the nature of the problem and leading from the top. That's something that Biden and only Biden can do in terms of communicating the citizens the urgency of the problem of fixing the vaccination issue, but also to try to find ways of ensuring that he's got the, the kind of messaging to people about the importance of vaccination. The second thing is to develop a strategy to deal with the logistical issues. For the time being, at least, we have a supply problem. There just isn't nearly enough supply of the vaccine to even take care of the current needs and current demands, but we don't have a logistical system in place to deliver it. We've been pretty good about getting it to the airport, not very good about getting it from the airport into people's arms. And that's the next piece. Uh, there's been talk about trying to federalize the entire effort, but the federal government simply does not have the capacity to be able to do it all on its own. So that there has to be an effort to try to connect this federal effort to deliver the vaccines through UPS and FedEx into a very complex system of stadiums, of of uh, convention centers, of local public health offices to be able to deliver the vaccine at scale to be able to immunize Americans. There has to be a process of communicating to people about how it is that they can sign up. And there has to be a logistical effort to make it easier to sign up to be able to get those vaccines, which is something that the large IT firms have mastered, but which many county public health departments simply don't have the ability to be able to do. And then last, we need to make sure that we pay attention to the issues of equity, because there already are, are troubling signs that the vaccine distribution is focused largely on, uh, on people who have more privilege and less on people who are underserved and have been underserved in the healthcare system, especially Blacks and Hispanics. The, the virus process has already disproportionately affected those populations. Unless we're careful, we run the risk of being uh, increasing this disparity in the system, which is already aggravated by the fact that some communities simply distrust the virus more than others. So we have to look at the differences between big cities and rural areas, between blacks in particular who tend to distrust the vaccine and whites who are more trustful. Uh, they, we have to look at the difference between older Americans who are more likely to want to get the vaccine and millennials who are more suspicious. There are lots of information pieces out there that suggest where the problems are. And that's all going to take both leadership in a rhetorical sense, leadership in a administrative sense, and partnerships and collaboration, public, private, and nonprofit that can connect the different parts of society to be able to get this job done. If we get our act together, we can get back to something approaching normal life by perhaps the end of the summer and have a chance to be able to get together with families on Thanksgiving. If not, at the current pace, it's going to be this time next year until we can begin to get our heads up. And so it's in our hands right now to figure out how to try to do just that. Jeremy, as we look back to history, is there an example that we can point to where the public sector and the private sector came uh, together to accomplish a challenge as large as we're facing with a COVID vaccine? Absolutely. We can do this. We have done this. In fact, we won World War II, Stephen, because we did this. Uh, every historian of World War II will tell you we won the war because we outproduced 
other societies. Uh, the day after the Pearl Harbor attack, the United States had a military that was smaller than the uh, number of Germans occupying France at the time. We were woefully unprepared, and we were able, uh, within a relatively short time, uh, to, to fuel uh, an army, a navy, an air force, uh, and create the productive capacity to not only uh, provide military supplies to a two-front war, but to feed the world, <laughs> including ourselves. Uh, we had rationing of food. Uh, Texans were eating less meat because of the war. And we had millions of people, particularly African-Americans, who were moved uh, with government help from the South to factories in Chicago, Detroit, and elsewhere to produce more aircraft per day by the end of the war than our enemies were producing in a year. So, so we can do this, uh, but it takes uh, exactly what Don said. It takes a leadership commitment and it takes uh, savviness and understanding of how our system works. Uh, we always say as scholars that you have to map the system before you figure out how to navigate the system. We've been trying to navigate without a map for a long time. It's time that we map how our system works, see the strengths, and build on them. Three historical points here then that I would make that, that, are, that come out of this historical uh, perspective. One, uh, it requires clear information. Uh, right now, uh, the city of Austin does not know what the federal government is doing. They don't know. Uh, my wife's on the city council. She has given, she's been given no clear indication of what federal policy is in the distribution of vaccines. I'm sure that will come from Biden, but it is terrible that we've gone a year and there's no clear communication. Information needs to be communicated clearly and effectively, and it has to be communicated in a truthful way, how difficult the challenges are and what the government is doing. Second, resources need to be pushed out. Uh, Roosevelt famously said that the secret to solving the depression and winning World War II was not efficiency, it was going to be quantity. You have to get more money out, more resources out to more people and empower those individuals, those local state actors and others to, to do their jobs. There are thousands and thousands of highly qualified emergency relief uh, individuals working in different states, working in cities. Many of them are in the private sector. And just like during the New Deal, they need to be empowered uh, and federalized in a certain way. Not that they're going to follow federal orders, but they need to be part of a federal coordinated effort that's attentive to the local needs of cities and communities. And then third, and the piece that's really been missing, Stephen, is citizenships, citizenship. Citizens need to take ownership of this. The president and other leaders, including state leaders, need to speak out and citizens need to take ownership of their behavior. There were always citizens in World War II who violated rationing laws and ate more meat than they should have eaten or had more butter than they should have had. But in fact, the vast majority of Americans followed the rules. The vast majority of Americans bought bonds, put their life savings into the war effort. We need to make this a collective effort. This needs to be a generational calling for all of us. Um, and that makes a difference in terms of getting people mobilized behind the effort and sharing information effectively. We all have to be part of this, and our leaders have to encourage that rather than discourage it as they've been doing for the last year. Don and Jeremy, how can listeners learn more about your work? There is more information about my work, both on the website at the LBJ School, as well as with the pieces that I write for governing.com, as well as govexec.com. And in that combination, it's possible to track all that down. Then finally, if you're interested in federalism, I have a book, The Divided States of America from Princeton University Press, which provides a look from before the revolution to the present in terms of the challenges that we face. And uh, 
yes. So uh, I, my work is in probably too many places. Many people would probably prefer to avoid being overwhelmed by things I've written. Uh, I, uh, I've written most recently a book on the presidency, the impossible presidency on how presidents over time have struggled with crises like this. I have a weekly podcast, uh, which I hope many of our listeners today will listen to. This is Democracy. We actually have a, quite a large audience of young listeners to that. It's about how history can inform our democratic decision-making today. I write frequently for CNN, the Washington Post, and other places. Uh, many of the links to these materials are available on the LBJ website. You can also go to Jeremy Suri, J-E-R-E-M-I-S-U-R-I.net, and uh, material is there, as well as uh, news interviews and other things. But most recently, I've been delighted to be part of the project that Stephen Pedigo has spearheaded, uh, producing what I think is a really important uh, book on resilient leadership. And both Don and I had pieces in there that I think are the basis for this discussion. Don and Jeremy, thanks for joining us for today's podcast. It's been such a pleasure. My pleasure. This is Policy on Purpose, a podcast produced by the LBJ School of Public Affairs at the University of Texas at Austin. We take you behind the scenes of policy with the people who help shape it. To learn more, visit lbj.utexas.edu and follow us on Twitter or Facebook at the LBJ School. Thank you for listening.